A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. In the past few episodes, we've talked a lot about the life and rule of Henry VIII, and there are lots of other topics I'd like to explore too. So I'd like to move on past Henry to the rule of his children. Before his son Edward is able to take the throne, though, we need to finish up the final years of Henry's life and discuss the politics that were making the court a very dangerous place for Henry's final queen. Henry's sixth and final wife was Catherine Parr. Catherine attracted Henry's attention when she was still the wife of the elderly John Neville, Lord Latimer. He was actually her second husband, as her first husband had also been older and died around 1528. In contrast to Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr was not a young girl, but was a well-educated and mature woman of just about 30. Her intellect was probably very attractive to Henry, who was by now becoming too old for the flirtatious games of young girls. Catherine's husband was older and was very ill, and Henry began courting her even while her husband was still alive. By March of 1543, Catherine's husband had died, and she was a wealthy widow. Catherine Parr was educated, but even more than that, she was pious and held radical, possibly Protestant, viewpoints, and had to be very careful. During the time that Henry was wooing Catherine, Bishop Gardner, the Bishop of Winchester, was vigorously prosecuting heretics and Lutherans, they were the same to him, and began striking at Cranmer, who was still protected by the king. Gardner made numerous attempts to arrest Cranmer and rid the court of the influence of heretics, whom he believed were indoctrinating the king. Henry never let anything happen to Cranmer, so Gardner began moving on to the more low-hanging fruit, going after the members of the privy chamber. It was into this sea of religious politics where the stakes were life and death that Catherine Parr was thrown when the king married her in July of 1543. While many people portray Catherine Parr as little more than a nursemaid, by many contemporary accounts, they were actually very happy with each other, and up until the final months of Henry's life, were on the move and very active. Early on, Catherine had supported scholars and cultures at court. 
She welcomed learning and gave money from her own privy purse to students who were unable to afford their education. Outwardly, she was orthodox in her observances, yet privately she held very radical beliefs, and the members of her inner circle were like-minded. Many of the people in her inner circle had criticized Catholic bishops, and her bedchamber became a haven for those with radical opinions. Though the queen spent many hours each day in quiet study and contemplation, she was becoming an enemy to the conservatives, who were afraid that she was preaching radical beliefs to the king. Catherine was kind and loving to the king's children. His daughter Mary was only four years younger than Catherine, so they quickly became friends. She encouraged Princess Elizabeth to come to court more often, and even young Prince Edward was allowed to visit from time to time. Henry had always limited the time he spent at court for fear that his longed-for son would catch an infection. All three children spent Christmas together at court in 1543, and things seemed to be finally settling down into a nice rhythm for Henry and his family. In 1544, Henry went off to France again, this time to invade Boulogne. Henry led the invasion himself, despite his old jousting injury to his leg, keeping him in bed for over a week in February of 1544. He found new energy campaigning in France, and a year later, when he was back at home, he mentioned that he felt much better at war in France than he did at home. His closest companion became his physician, Dr. William Butts, who was perhaps a closet Protestant, but was also a discreet and trustworthy confidant of Henry's. Also in 1545, Henry was growing so weary that, to avoid tiring him further with day-to-day -day business, a stamp with his signature was brought into use. The stamp left an imprint of the royal signature, which was then colored in by people authorized to use it, members of the privy chamber, and witnesses were always required when the stamp was used as well. Early in 1546, Catherine used her influence to have Henry pay attention to the universities, Oxford and Cambridge, which had been neglected during the Reformation. At Oxford, he refounded Wolsey's College and named it Christchurch. At Cambridge, he founded and endowed Trinity College, replacing three medieval colleges. Also in 1546, Henry appointed Cranmer to head an ecclesiastical commission to look at the validity of some church ceremonies that Henry thought were superstitious and papist. Among them were the ringing of the bells on All Souls' Eve. But before the commission could really get started, Gardner wrote a long letter to Henry protesting these changes, and Henry changed his mind. As 1546 wore on, Henry was often sick in bed, and it became clear that he would not live until Edward had reached his majority and was old enough to rule. The factions began getting ready for a fight over who would have control over Prince Edward, and one target of the conservatives became Queen Catherine. They had long suspected her of heresy, and while they also resented her influence over the king and Prince Edward. Gardner was determined to purge the court of all heretics and was prepared to eliminate the queen if need be. That spring, several events happened that played right into their hands. First, the Duke of Norfolk's younger son protested the orthodox sermons preached by the royal chaplains during Lent and openly criticized them, both in the queen's chamber and elsewhere at court. In May, a court preacher named Dr. Edward Crome was arrested for heresy. 
Under interrogation, he revealed the names of his associates, among whom were several courtiers and a woman from Lincolnshire, Anne Askew. Anne was an open Protestant and had connections at court, and knew some of the Queen's ladies. She was brought to the tower and tortured on the rack in hopes that she could give evidence against the Queen, but she maintained her silence. But Dr. Crome had named several mem members of the Privy Chamber, and Gardner had them all arrested. Early in July, Henry was sick again and had a group of conservatives with him at Whitehall. One day, Catherine angered Henry by apparently be being too opinionated when they were debating a theological matter. When Catherine left, Henry grumbled that he didn't like being lectured in his old age by his wife. Gardner took the opening to risk bringing up the idea that maybe the queen might be a heretic, and the king gave him permission to investigate further. Her books were examined, her ladies were questioned, but they gave away nothing, so a warrant for her arrest was issued for her to be questioned. By luck, the warrant fell from the pocket of a counselor's gown and was found by a member of the queen's household, who took it to her. Horrified, Catherine began screaming in panic. Henry heard her in his own apartments and sent his physician to discover what was wrong. The queen told him, and the physician urged her to go to the king and plead for forgiveness. Catherine took his advice and told Henry that if she had ever dared dispute with one whom nature had so patently formed for superiority, it was only to divert him in his illness. That pleased Henry, who asked, is that so, sweetheart? If so, we are perfect friends again. The next day, the king and queen were sitting together in the garden, and the lord chancellor arrived with guards to arrest the queen. The king rose, berated him, and began beating him around the head, shouting at him. So Catherine Parr was safe, but Anne Askew was burned at Smithfield on July 16th. The collapse of the plot against the queen along with the return of Lord Hartford, a secret, secret Protestant and the uncle of Prince Edward to court, ended the witch hunt for, for heretics. The king's health was failing, and he spent most of his time in his own lodgings or his garden. His temper was more volatile than ever, and his legs gave him an incredible amount of pain. He refused to give in, believing that he still had many years ahead of him, and he tried to lead as normal a life as possible. He had special chairs made to allow him to be carried, and by now he was so obese that there are reports that he was unable to go up or down stairs without being pulled by a mechanical device. Henry struggled to maintain control over the factions springing up to fight over the influence of Prince Edward, but he refused to confront the issue of his health, going along as if everything was just fine. Henry started his normal hunting progress in late August but stayed near home, and by September the exertion had become too much for him, and he was forced to retire in Windsor and abandon the progress. In December, Henry was laid low again with a fever and nearly died then. He rallied and he declared himself completely healed, but everybody could see that he would not last long. The Seymours, the uncles of Prince Edward, were rising at court, and everyone could see that they would be in power before too long. Henry was able to travel in late December and moved in stages via Escher, Wimbledon, Whitehall and stayed at Greenwich for the last time on the 22nd of December. He was plainly very ill. For example, in August he had paid less than five pounds for sick rooms and comforts 
and in December the bill rose to 25 pounds, and this included purchases of perfume to sweeten the chambers and his sheets. On Christmas Eve, the Queen and the King's daughters left Whitehall on his orders to spend Christmas in Greenwich. Henry spent the festive season in total seclusion. He went over his will again, and by January 1st he was fevered and had yet another relapse on January 19th. Even his musicians had been dismissed, and his counselors took turns sitting with him throughout the long winter nights. On January 26th, he summoned Queen Catherine to his bed and said, It is God's will that we should part. But then he was just too choked up to go on. On January 27th, he saw his confessor, and he received communion. The council knew that his death was near and ordered all of the ports closed. But no one had the courage to warn Henry that his death was near. Henry hated talk of death. But they wanted to give him time to prepare his soul. So finally one doctor told him that, in man's judgment, he was not like to live, and asked if he wanted to speak with any learned men. Henry replied that he might like to talk to Cranmer, but he would like to sleep a little first, and then, as he felt better, he would let them know. A messenger was sent off to get Cranmer, but by the time he arrived in the early morning hours of January 28th, Henry was unable to speak. Cranmer asked him to give a sign that he died in the faith of Christ, and he wrung his hand in Cranmer's as long as he could, and they took that for an assent. Shortly afterwards, Henry VIII died quietly. Later that day, Lord Hartford rode to the nine-year-old prince to pay homage to him as king. Thanks for listening this week. Next time, I'll talk about the short reign of Edward. In the next decade or so will be a tumultuous time in English history, with no strong leader like Henry to take control. It would take his daughter by Anne Boleyn, Princess Elizabeth, to bring England to the full potential of the Renaissance. So we will spend a lot of time on her in future episodes as well. If you have any show ideas, questions, or comments, you can write them on the blog, http colon slash slash englandcast.blogspot.com. You can also find the Renaissance English History pa Podcast page on Facebook and write to me there. Talk to you next time. Blow, northern wind, a central baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoor te boord in bouwrubriek, dat...